It's Friday, December 2nd, 2022. And from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. Starting this month, Pennsylvania counties can apply for more than $120 million in new funding from the state's Whole Home Repairs Program. Income-eligible homeowners will be able to seek up to $50,000 in grants to fix up ailing properties, while owners of affordably priced rental units can also apply for subsidized loans. The allocation approved last summer is notable for a couple of reasons. One is the unusually strong bipartisan support the bill received as it sailed through the General Assembly in just a few months, an increasingly rare feat in Harrisburg. Another is the way it addresses a whole range of overlapping concerns, from housing and urban redevelopment to public health and environmental justice. It'll also unlock other potential funding opportunities for owners of older homes to improve energy efficiency. Upgrades that will cut into a major source of carbon emissions in Pennsylvania. Janine Zappa with the Keystone Energy Efficiency Alliance and Elizabeth Marks of the Pennsylvania Utility Law Project are part of a coalition of groups that back the measure. They're both here on the podcast to explain why it's an important step, not just for low-income Pennsylvanians, but also for the climate. Janine, Liz, welcome. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us on. So we're talking about this new whole home repair legislation. This is a pretty big piece of legislation, so it's maybe hard to know where to start. But, um, you know, our focus here at, at PEC and a lot of the organizations we work with is, is going to be on energy and water efficiency. But, of course, this goes well beyond that. Uh, so to begin with, can you just give me kind of an overview of the legislation, why it was needed, what it does, and what are the primary programs that benefit? You know, Josh, the program is the result of a need to really fill areas that we are not addressing in the current weatherization programs, whether those are run by a utility or under the umbrella of the broader weatherization assistance program. And many, many homes every year have been deferred from those programs because of issues related to moisture, mold, pests, roof leaks, foundation drainage which are moisture, things that keep those homes from really um, being positioned to be weatherized. And so this is a great program designed to address that. It specifically allows a forgivable loan of up to $50,000 per home. This uh, program was put in place as an appropriation, a budget appropriation rather than a piece of legislation, technically speaking. So there's $125 million that has been allocated until it would run out. I think everybody's hope is that we will see this be hugely successful because it is deeply needed. And then we will have a broader, more permanent program afterward. Liz, do you want to add on to that? That's a really high level starting point. Yeah, low income households have very high, disproportionately high energy burdens, right? Um, They pay more compared to higher income, middle income households. The difference is, uh, you know, it can be anywhere. So a middle income household may have a, an energy burden, and the, the average is about three or four percent of income. The average energy burden for a low income household can be anywhere between six and 30 percent, right? That is a large portion. And I should say, back up and say, an energy burden is the percent of your income that you pay towards your energy costs, right? Electricity and heat. Um, those are your major home energy costs. And so when you're paying 30% or more of your income on 
energy, you have very, very little left over, uh, especially given the high rent burdens that folks are facing, um, the high food costs that folks, folks are facing. And so, um, you know, this program is going to get at that disparity by eliminating some of the challenges with low-income housing, which is that it's just they're less insulated, they're older, they tend to have less new appliances that might use less energy. That's why there's a disparity in energy burden, right? It's not because people are cranking their heat and turning the windows out. That's not what's happening. We've got low-income homes that are just not well-insulated, weatherized um, in order to uh, save those energy costs. And so it's one of those compounding things. It's like a snowball rolling down a hill, right? Um, and what this does, it will take some of the homes that are in worse repair across the state and take them off that deferral list. As Shanine said, you know, we have a ton of households that cannot be weatherized. They can't receive energy efficiency because you cannot seal up a house with mold in it, right? You can't go in and seal all the cracks because if, if there's mold in that home, then that household will have those compounding health effects as a result. So this program will come in and it'll fix those, those kinds of home repair issues that the energy efficiency programming can't. Um, and hopefully will help buy down uh, energy burden. Um, you know, when a house is weatherized, they can save upwards of almost $300 a year, more in a year like this when we're facing some of the highest energy costs um, in decades um, uh, for home heating. And so, you know, we're, we're really encouraged that this program is rolling out when it is. Um, you know, and just a number for you, I think we have something like 10,000 homes in Pennsylvania that have been deferred for weatherization, and that's just through the weatherization assistance program. There are thousands more that are deferred for comprehensive energy efficiency programming through the utility-sponsored programs, the low-income usage reduction program. So we've got really across the state probably tens of thousands of households that can't be weatherized, that can't get comprehensive energy efficiency because of the condition of their home. So this is a crack at that, and you know it's serving as a national model. Yeah, I, I would just add to that, Josh, and say right that anecdotally, it's something in the neighborhood of thirty percent of homes that should be able to receive these services that exist cannot go through the programs because of these other problematic conditions. And it, it's really important to note that there's very stringent and appropriately stringent rules about how you can spend weatherization dollars and or how you can spend um, dollars in a utility program to which most of us have contributed, right? What they're referred to as rate payer dollars, right? So usually you can only use them to reduce energy. And that's why these, these barriers to completing these homes exist because everybody's trying to follow the rules. But that results in the homes that are in the worst shape simply being stuck and kind of cut out on the playground and said, can't you don't get to play the game? Right. And that's not what we want. So this is an opportunity to bring everybody along and redress a long-standing problem. And Liz is right, it's it, it's a great national model too. There, there's interest across the country in this legislation in this program. 
Well, it's interesting that the value of this program would seem to go beyond the immediate assistance to uh, homeowners and residents and that it, it just sort of like brings everything up to a level where more things are possible. I wonder if the same can be said for, you know, when we think about building, you know, a comprehensive clean energy system in Pennsylvania and reducing carbon emissions and improving energy efficiency and everything. Does this also kind of set Pennsylvania up for success in other areas? And in particular, when we talk about workforce and business development, you know, the companies that are going to make all of these you know, improvements, does it also work that way? So Josh, I think that this program sets the stage for a starting point in Pennsylvania. I don't think it is a silver bullet that's going to solve the many issues that we have, but it's a great way to ensure that there's funds deployed to also train people and to specifically bring along uh, communities that have not been included in this clean energy economy and in these jobs, right? So there's a workforce development component to the to the program, and that's great. Um, I don't think this is everything we need. Here's the one thing I think it does do, right? It's a perfect opportunity to illustrate to decision makers in the state how important it is to include non-energy benefits in the way we measure the success of these programs. We are fixated on not addressing all of these additional health benefits in homes, occupant comfort, occupant safety issues that are part of the benefit that will come out of this kind of program. And if we insist upon looking at a you know cost test that says, how much did it cost to reduce per kilowatt hour? And that alone, we are not taking into account any of those additional benefits, let alone carbon reduction. So I do think it's a starting point for that. I will also tell you that we are very hopeful that at least some of the counties will choose to voluntarily make measurement in homes that has been done in other pilot programs, um, both in Philadelphia and in Pittsburgh in the past, so that you could measure indoor air quality, you could demonstrably and um, you know with evidence show, here's the improvement that we are making. Here is the reduction in mold, here's the reduction in radon, right? Which is uh, you know the, the number two cause of lung cancer behind smoking. So these are important improvements in homes. And so we're hoping that voluntarily, since it is not part of the guidelines, which were just released yesterday, that any of that kind of thing be required. And nor in a first stab at something, do you want to burden it too much? You want it to get going, get its sea legs, figure out the kinks, and then figure out how you're going to amp it up to the next level. So that's my hope for this program, Josh. Um, I'll stop there, Liz. Maybe you want to comment on, you know, what does this set the stage for in PA? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. The beginning, right? We are recognizing a need to integrate programs. And so there's two components in this, in addition to the kind of grants and loans that'll go out to, you know, grants to uh, homeowners and loans to small landlords through this program to do the kinds of home repair necessary to facilitate the energy efficiency. But what's also in there is a technical assistance component and a coordination and um, Training and training components, and so you've got um, the makings of what I think we really need in this state, which is coordination across programs. Um, we need to be able to have a no wrong door where um, low and moderate income households can walk in and get energy efficiency. You know, and have one contractor come to and fix the home and put in the energy efficiency. And so I think you know. I think we're all kind of holding our breath to see how this works. Um, you know, I will be 
completely honest, I have some concerns about the county by county role that this is rolling out as. And I think we do need, at the same time as this rolls out, I think there needs to be some real guidance to the counties um, to follow up on and, and to keep moving with this. I think we are right to get this off the ground as soon as possible. We're going to have to keep building the plane as we fly, right? And some of that is making sure that we put um, some uh, policies in place that'll complement this program and make sure that we can pull all those pieces together effectively um, in every county, right? And so that means some counties are going to need more assistance. Other counties are going to be leaders. Um, and uh, we need to see how that goes. And we all need to be working out of our silos. We have had, a, you know, we cannot, we can no longer work in energy efficiency and housing. We have to be looking at it holistically as health and housing and energy all together. Yeah, let's let's stay with that and talk about what this looks like as it rolls out. The law's passed, obviously, but implementation is another thing, as you said. What are the what are the steps going to be? Like what does this process look like? What are the the kind of tricky areas that you kind of were talking about? What do we need to be keeping an eye on? And where will be the opportunities for public input? I think the opportunity for public input, sadly, for at least this first initial part, has already occurred. And uh Department of Community and Economic Development did receive feedback from a number of groups, including Liz's organization and ours, uh, and many others in this space, but there was not a public listening session. People um, took the time to provide comments and input. Um, The next steps, as I understand it, and again, the guidelines were literally released on November 17th, but there are also allocations based on population. So the Entities within a county need to apply for to receive those funds, and there is a deadline in, I want to say, January, that if they have not applied for those funds, those funds will roll to back into a pool that can be tapped into by other counties. So basically, you have to opt in, and we anticipate that will largely be uh, groups that are already doing weatherization work in counties, uh, and then they would have to stand up a, a program to coordinate these resources. So those are at a super high level, the next steps. I think that illustrates Liz's point that we need that kind of coordination. The challenge of how this is rolling out is that because it is a population-based grant uh, or population-based formulaic allocation of funds right now, uh, those counties who have more capacity are more likely to be able to take advantage of this in the early stages and we we know we know that high energy burden, it cuts across every single county in this commonwealth. This is not an urban issue or a rural issue. It is a housing issue and we need to address it. So that's a starting point consideration. I think there'll be more public input later. I don't know, Liz, do you want to chime in there? Yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be, an, like, as I said earlier, I think this is a starting point. And the reason I say that is because while 179 million sounds like an awful lot of money, <laughs> it is a literal drop in the bucket compared to the home repair that needs to be done across the state to facilitate energy efficiency, right? If this program were to do nothing other than address all of those homes that have been deferred in the last two years for energy efficiency programming, the money would be eaten up, right? So 
Um, I think, you know, I think we're going to see some of the larger counties roll that out. Uh, some of the, you know, smaller counties that have maybe more experience in some of these kind of coordinated service delivery. Um, and that's, uh, I think that's okay. Um, and so I think, you know, the opportunities for the public um, are probably, um, uh, you know, in talking with figuring out who in your county is going to be applying for these funds, right? It's either going to be the county or somebody the county has kind of designated, either a nonprofit or maybe the housing authority um, in that county that'll have, you know, control of this, and they'll be coming up with a plan and submitting that plan to DCED. And so in the local level, there's probably an opportunity to have some discussions with local leaders about this program and what it might look like in that county to serve that county's needs. I'm wondering if it would be worth taking a little bit more time to explain the role of the counties, since you, you both have been talking about counties a lot. Could you could you sort of explain how the legislation defines that, that role for counties in Pennsylvania? Yeah, so a county applicant is the is the term that was defined in the legislation and in the in the guidelines. So essentially, it's either uh, the county itself that's applying, right? So maybe a department within the county puts together the application and they're going to administer it, um, or it's whoever that the county leadership. And so it's going to be different. County in the first class, it's going to be determined by mayor or by city council in the second class it'll be determined by executive other counties it will it'll be um determined by the county government right so that's just different terms used for the same thing it's county leadership they will determine who's going to kind of administer this program and then the program administer that's that's who can apply right who can apply for funds to dced um that applicant can then subcontract out pieces of this, right? And I think that's what you're going to see in most counties is that one agency or one department within a county is not going to be fully equipped to do all the parts of this. And so they're going to need other kind of um, subcontractors to come in to actually do some of the on the ground. This legislation is notable not just for what it does, but for the, I think, broad bipartisan support that it has received pretty much from the get-go. And not only that, but it moved pretty quickly through the legislative process to become law. That's kind of unusual. What what does that say to you about the need for this kind of work and what's next in terms of, of other issues to be addressed? I think we saw in the pandemic and doing low-income energy uh, affordability and utility access work in the pandemic. The pandemic shone a really bright spotlight on what it means to live in an unhealthy, unsafe living environment, right? And not having access to um, enough energy to heat your home, not having, you know, insulation, having mold problems, being at home, right? We were all ordered for several months to stay at home as much as possible. And I think that really, what we would, what we were out there saying was, home is actually not a safe place for a lot of people, right? And so I think there was more attention paid than ever before to some of the disparities, right? Early on in the pandemic, we saw that those who were impacted most um, and who had the greatest loss of life were low-income communities and black and brown communities. 
And I think that's an undeniable fact. There's lots and lots of research that's already gone into it. You saw that um, eviction moratoria and moratoria on termination of utility services actually ended up saving lives, right? Quantifiably saving lives. Um, uh, and so, you know, I think the reason you saw bipartisan support was a groundswell of people saying, we need to make sure that Pennsylvanians have safe, safe homes, healthy homes, and, you know, that this is, this is a right of people to be healthy and safe in their does just the overall uh, increasing cost of energy also play a role in making this uh, making more people think about this issue than they might have in the past? I think so, but I don't think that was the case of why it passed because you know this happened in June before you know we were all so focused on Ukraine and the impact on uh, fuel prices and. Uh, I, I think, Josh, that yes, of course, this year in particular, right, with the global nature of the energy market and the impact that we are seeing, and then, of course, you know, the weather, there's, as we speak, there's three feet of lake effect snow falling in Erie, Pennsylvania, right? So we all know that, you know, the cycle has uh, accelerated. So we're going to see more extreme heat, more extreme cold. We have evidence of that over the past decade in the state, right? More extreme flooding. So we know that resilience of homes is critical. So I think there's another thing at play here, right? So of course the prices matter and we've seen inflation. Um, so people's purchasing power is down, rates are up. So to Liz's point earlier, the high energy burden delta is much higher so that if you are, you know, if you were paying 16% of your household income, you might now be paying 20% just to heat and or cool your home, more likely just heat, right? You might have a window unit air conditioner, but, you know, your electricity and, and light, you know, so light and heat your home. The other piece, though, I want to step back to something you said, right? This got extremely strong bipartisan support. And I think there's another thing at play, which is, um, yeah, it's a housing issue. But I think there are very few districts in the state where a an elected official of the 256, right, in the House um, does not have a segment of their geographic territory that has blighted housing or low-income residents for whom these are true issues. So this cuts across the aisle because these are constituent issues that many, many elected officials see. And I think they did have that bright light shine on them, but these have also been percolating for a long time. And so it's a really common sense measure of how do we fix a problem that we've known has been around for a long time. And we also had funding this year, right? We had a huge budget surplus in Pennsylvania and we had this leftover ARA funding, which is what this was used, how this got funded. So I think the desire has been here for a while, but we had the perfect you know, intersection of events that allowed it to occur. And I think there's another thing that really brought people in support behind this, which is blight is a big issue in the state. And people would like to um, have a way to stem that off before these houses continue to spiral downward and to keep uh, generational homeowners in a home in particular in communities. You know, and so it's great to have redevelopment, but we don't want to gentrify communities to the point where original residents or, you know, somebody's grandparent bequeath the home to them. But because they don't have the monetary income to maintain that home, it's deteriorated. And so now you've got this high energy burden issue and they can't even take advantage of the resources that are there for them through existing programs because of these problems. Right. So 
you know, it's like they're outside of the safety net that we've created. So this was a really smart measure. It helps to prevent blight. And I mean, yeah, that's a whole nother conversation, but yeah. So I think those things have helped to get this further ahead. And so I think looking for those unifying measures that are important in every district um, that matter to elected officials and that are something they hear from their constituents about will be the opportunity that I think you were asking about, like, where do we see a pathway, right? And bringing it back to the environment, I mean, obviously, <laughs> everything we've been talking about is really important uh, to a wide swath of, of Pennsylvania, clearly. Climate arguably is as important or, or more so. This will, I imagine, have a non-trivial impact on Pennsylvania's efforts to be more energy efficient and reduce carbon emissions. Do we have a sense of what that impact will actually be? Or is there is there modeling or estimates on, you know, how, how this actually pays dividends for the climate? So I don't know if it has a multiple numbers. I just want to say, like, from an environmental justice perspective, right, and in, in energy affordability and energy justice, very much squarely in the environmental justice kind of field, um, right? And and what this will do, right? There's a lot of talk about electrification and what that can do as far as helping homes. But right now in Pennsylvania, we cannot just electrify homes, right? We need to fix the building measures and or fix the building envelopes and make them uh, able to do things like rooftop solar, transition to renewables, we have a hard time even engaging in that conversation and like how do you get to electrify homes how do you get to deploy renewable energy um in low-income communities because we're still dealing the putting you know fixing the home issue um and so i think it's like it's like uh you know a primer coat that you have to put on in order to to fix something right i often will say Right when somebody has a gaping wound, you cannot treat their cancer until you stop the bleeding. And Josh, to your point about measurement, I don't think there was any modeling or anything, but I can tell you that energy efficiency, you know, is proven demonstrable, and there is data that you could use to extrapolate, right? So the utility universal services programs have to report out every year, and it's a two-year look back, or it's a two-year time frame because it's a year before the weatherization measure was installed and a year after and they show what was the difference in performance and they run the gamut you know from like 13 to 22 percent right depending upon whether it's electric only or if it's a gas utility because it typically you get a better result if you're adjusting home heating because you will often do those building shell measures in addition right so that that's not even the level of investment we were talking here i can also tell you that typically for an investment of 10 to 12000 you can pretty readily get a 20% reduction in energy usage so that's a big deal if i told you you could use 20% less energy so that is a direct relationship to state um carbon footprint i don't i couldn't pull up fast enough the numbers in residential in the state climate action plan but you might want to pull that for your listeners um, I do know in Pittsburgh's climate action plan, the last time they put together a carbon footprint that the residential sector was 25% of their carbon footprint. So it's usually not small. If you could reduce that by 20%, that's a, a not insignificant reduction in carbon. Uh, so energy efficiency measures and these kind of improvements is a, is a hugely worthwhile investment for the environment and for resilience, right? We talked about these extreme weather events and the disproportionate impact on you know low-income communities is well known 
And we need to be addressing that too. So this really helps to protect people in many, many ways and stabilize housing. Um, so those are the metrics I would think about, even though it wasn't modeled, I, I, I feel 100% confident that you're gonna see measurable demonstrable reduction through this work. And I'll just, I'll just add to that as you're talking, Janine, I'm remembering, you know, there have been some, this didn't come out of nowhere, this project, right? This pilot, um, or not pilot, program. Um, there have been other pilots across the state to pair um, home repair with the energy efficiency. Um, and in those cases, when you are repairing a home that has disproportionately high energy usage, um, what we've seen in a couple of the very small pilots, right? We're talking about pilots with like 20, 30 homes. We're seeing um, that in fact, they're getting more than the 20% savings that they get in some high usage households because they're taking a household, they're insulating it, they're like, you know, they're they're fixing some of the problems that may have exacerbated energy usage beyond what um, a normal house with high energy usage might be experiencing, right? And so you're you're taking that and being able to get even more energy efficiency savings, um, reducing energy impacts, reducing you know uh, across the board. Yeah, it's all those you know. I think they call them triple triple bottom line. Well, I have the sense that when you're thinking about bang for buck and, you know, the impact of, of the spending, it's hard to beat energy efficiency, not just in residential. But if you really want to devote resources to lowering carbon emissions, that's a really good place to start. It is. It's the least cost measure across the board, without a doubt, almost every time. Right. I'm sure there's exceptions to that rule, Josh, but it is consistently dollar for dollar, a very useful investment. And, um, you know, you often have double, triple return. And you may have a first cost, like many things, right, depending upon the kind of measure you're putting in, but you're going to have lasting year over year savings, right? So that operational savings has to be taken into account. Well, you know, it's also like you think about it, a program across the board that can reduce residential energy usage you're then reducing when the energy usage is peaking, which means you may be able to reduce kind of the, you know, the peaker plants that are necessary to feed the grid, right? So there are grid benefits to um, this project, this program, right? That will we will see. Um, and right now there's an awful lot going into infrastructure. And if we can use that money to make our grid more resilient rather than building it out to handle more load, because we're actually working to reduce the load, um, you know, you have other benefits that are really going to come out of this program. Well, Liz, Janine, thank you so much for sharing your perspective on this. And, uh, you know, I guess congratulations. Thank you. There's a whole lot of people who worked on this. We are so proud to be part of it. We're excited to see it happen and just want it to succeed. So and thank you, Josh, so much for the opportunity to help uh, push it forward. Yes, thank, thank you for for highlighting this program. And yes, uh, we had a very small role and we were happy to be involved. Um, but there were so many folks from housing and health and, uh, you know, community groups that have, have come together around this. So I'd be remiss if I let you say congratulations to us and congratulations to all those that worked on it. And thank you again. Congratulations, everybody. Thanks again for being on the show. Thank you, Josh. Thank you.
Elizabeth Marks is executive director of the Pennsylvania Utility Law Project, and Janine Zappa is executive director of the Keystone Energy Efficiency Alliance. You can learn more about why housing is a critical piece of the climate puzzle in Pennsylvania via the show notes for this episode, Pennsylvania Legacies number 181, at our website. It's at pecpa.org, P-E-C-P-A org. There you can stream all past episodes of the Pennsylvania Legacies podcast. Of course, it's also available via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and anywhere else you find podcasts or just point your browser directly to pecpa.org. While you're there, check out news about all the other work PEC is doing, not only in energy and climate, but also watershed, protection and restoration, trails and public lands, and the role they play in Pennsylvania's growing outdoor economy, reforestation and restoration of formerly mined lands across the Commonwealth, and much more. It's at pecpa.org, P-E-C. PA.org. That's all for this time. Hope you can catch the next episode coming your way in about two weeks. For the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson, and thanks for listening. Music.